continue our series in the Great I Am, uh, we are looking to an understanding that comes out of the scriptures that reminds us that there is more to this experience with Christ than mere belief that he existed, and there is more to knowing Christ than having information about him. John directs us in that way today as we begin in chapter 1 in verse 6 and leads us to an understanding of the true light. He says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The John that he speaks of is John the Baptist. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the writer, the Apostle of John, will never make reference to himself as John. He will never use his own personal name in the Gospel record. He may refer to himself, but never by name. He may refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, or the beloved, or something of that nature, to describe the unique relationship he had with Christ, but never refer to himself as John. But he will use John repeatedly. He's talking about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who came announcing, is the one that is in question here. And he reminds us that when he came, that he came in order to announce, he came to prepare the way, he came as one who was sent from God. He's going to use the subject of light, and so the title comes from the passages itself, True Light, but in doing so, what he is helping us to understand is that John the Baptist came in order to introduce the world to the genuine light of Jesus Christ. This happens in three ways. We look at this section of Scripture, what we see is that the light is reflected through John the Baptist. The light is rejected by the world and by Israel in particular. And the light is received, and those who receive it, he has given the right to be called children of God. So the true light illuminates everything. Now, when we think of illumination, we think of something being made visible. That's true. But keep in mind that the gospel carries with it an understanding that reveals everything. So it reveals what is good. It reveals the hope that we find in Jesus. It reveals the promise that is associated with him as Messiah and as Redeemer. But it also reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our brokenness. It reveals the limitations So that when the gospel is proclaimed, and in this case, when Jesus is revealed as light to the world, he is going to illuminate our hope, but also our desperation. And it is in the unique bond of those two things that we come to the understanding of our genuine need and the reality that that need can be met only by Jesus himself. 
John the Baptist then shows us how he reflects the light. He was sent from God. So it's a very determined effort that is being carried out as John comes. He was prophesied that he would come as one in the spirit of Elijah who would prepare the way. He is calling people through his proclamation to repentance from sin. They are being baptized in order to seal that conviction and commitment, in order to bring down the things that stand as barriers before us, and to rise up that which is otherwise diminished in this world, in order to make the way straight so that people will have an unimpeded path to Jesus Christ. John sets forth an example of how we introduce the world to Jesus. When John went out to preach, he came from the wilderness and he preached in the wilderness and the people came to him in the wilderness. It's interesting how they had to put forth some effort to get to hear what he was proclaiming. It wasn't like they followed the same plan that we have. If you talk to a church architect, they'll tell you that the building needs to be located in a residential area, but it needs to be accessible to the larger community that it serves. It needs to be visible so that people don't have to struggle or have difficulty finding it. It needs to be well advertised. And so the church needs to be something that people can find so that they will, they will know about it or maybe there'll be some conversation about it. Some churches like our own that have been here for so long become established and traditional in their location and everything about them. And people will say, you know, which church do you go to? I go to Temple Baptist Church. And, and they'll say, is that the one by the post office? No, that's First Baptist Church. Oh, it's the other one. Yes, that's the one. Now, the fact that there are several other Baptist churches in the community don't even factor into the conversation because we're talking about a particular area. Once you get the church constructed and you have it in the right location and you've advertised it and people are able to find it, then it needs to be arranged in such a way. It needs to be comfortable. Have you ever tried to make the, the temperature in a room comfortable for this many people with this many varying sorts of preferences? What's the exact perfect temperature for a church? You've got to have it warm enough so that you're not shivering, but not so warm that you feel groggy. What is that temperature? I have absolutely no idea. What I do know is that no matter what I set it at, some of you won't like it. That I know. You need to arrange it so that there's ample seating. What does that mean? It means that the average Baptist behind is 18 inches wide. This is what the architects tell us. Obviously, the architects are Methodist. (laughs) That determines how many of those behinds you can put in a pew or a seat. And in order for Baptists to be comfortable, people in church in general to be comfortable, they need a certain amount of space. And so they can't be jammed together. They're jammed up together, they're not going to like it. And so once a building reaches 80% capacity, it's full. That's what they tell us. 
What does all that say? It says that in order for us to worship God, in order for us to serve God, in order for us to be the family of God, in order for us to give ourselves to the teaching of the Word, to be inspired, instructed, and discipled so that we can in turn share Christ in the world around us so that others come to know Him personally, in order for all of that to happen, we must be comfortable. And yet the very message of John was given to him and then he was sent in order to make the world uncomfortable. I'm not telling you that it is necessary in order for us to be obedient to the biblical teaching to, to go out of our way to disrupt and make people uncomfortable with the gospel. I'm telling you that the reality of the gospel is such that when it descends upon us, it will illuminate not only the, the wonder of God's grace, but also the very depth and darkness of our own sin. And it is only to the degree that we are drawn to that truth that we will discover it. John was sent from God specifically to declare Jesus and call people to repentance in preparation to receive him. It says he came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. John came to bear witness to the light. His testimony of Jesus is the reflection of truth. While Jesus is the origin and the essence of truth, John was a reflection. He wasn't the light, as he states at the end of this section, but he was bearing witness to the light. You and I are not the light. We simply bear witness to the light. And there is a reason. The purpose is so that all might believe. There are two words in this section that are used both negatively and positively that are extremely important. And we'll see them more than once. The first is the word believe, so that all might believe. One of the problems that we have in modern, uh, relatively modern evangelicalism is that we have adopted the mantra that, that the answer to the problems of the world is that we need to believe in Jesus. And so we encourage people and we tell them things, well, to be saved or to be redeemed, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. Now, most people that are in a church or that are associated with Christian folk are probably going to say, They believe in Jesus. But what they mean by that is that they believe that he existed. They might even believe some of the elements and issues that the Bible reveals about his divinity. They might believe something with regard to the miracles that he performed. Or maybe not. Either way, they believe that he was a good man, that he taught truth, that he encouraged love and peace. So that when we say we believe in Jesus or we tell someone that all you have to do is believe in Jesus, then what we're saying to them sometimes is being misinterpreted by the hearer. This word doesn't mean that. It means belief that is going to be translated into an experience of faithfulness, devotion, and sacrifice. Again, not always popular terminology, but nonetheless, 
This is what it means. It means to believe in such a way that we surrender to that which we believe. There is a much deeper experience here that would cover the full range of one's salvation when we realize that that salvation means coming to the awareness of our own sin, repenting of that sin and seeking God's forgiveness, devoting ourselves in full trust to Jesus, believing that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin and that the righteousness of Jesus is sufficient to uniquely and eternally equip us to become children of God adopted into his family. So that when we believe in Jesus, it's much more. But John came to prepare the way and to show the people the light as a reflection of what was to be found fully in Christ in order that we might believe. It's a powerful statement, but it's one that is vitally important. It says at the end of that verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So yes, I'm better, but it's not gone. I... I did have someone encourage me this week and said that the good news is it only lasts about a month. And so uh, uh, I felt so much better after that. Um, So the light reflected. John wanted no attention for himself, but rather directed all to Jesus. Uh, I think this is the challenge. We get mixed up in the mess, don't we? We really do. We get mixed up in the mess. And uh, you probably hear me occasionally say something alike in response to uh, a compliment about a message or an encouragement about something. Um, I'll say something like, yeah, I get a lot of grace. What I mean by that is that most of what you experience that is a blessing or benefit to you that comes from a message that I preach, I deserve none of the credit for. Um, that, that is ultimately and utterly belonging to God. I couldn't do what I do apart from what he does in me and through me any more than you can experience something that blesses or that guides or directs your life apart from his spirit working in you. And so what we get to be a part of is is this concert of praise to God that is the result of what he is doing in our midst on each end of the spectrum and everything in between. We are utterly dependent on him. John wanted it made very clear that he was not the light. Don't believe in John the Baptist. Believe in Jesus, the Messiah. He reflected the light so that others could see Christ. But not everyone responded positively. In verses 9 through 11, the light is rejected. Look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Bible speaks to us in a very specific way, reminding us of the unique circumstances that took place during the time that Jesus came into the world. We look back on it and we remember it with fondness and we remember it with such glory and such amazement. And yet that certainly was not the experience for Jesus and those that were near him by and large. There was a whole world of people and his own, in fact, included among them that rejected him. Jesus is the true light, indicating completeness and authenticity. That's why the word true is important. The true light, which gives light to everyone. Does he mean the true light as opposed to the false light? Eh, A little bit. But that's not really the focus of the word. The true light that he's talking about is talking about the quality, the character, and the nature of the light. Once you realize what that is, then everything else is obviously not the true light. He's talking about an authentic experience with Christ that provides a complete fulfillment through faith in Him. And so true light is describing the completeness and authenticity that is associated with faith in Jesus Christ. But even though Jesus was in the world, and even though the world itself was made through him, the world did not know him. Here's the second word, but now in a negative connotation. Not only believe is a word that is very important in John's gospel, and it means that that it's much more than mental assent, the word know is likewise a very important word, but it means much more than knowledge gained through intellect. Now, it doesn't mean that the intellect isn't part of it. Your mind is always part of what God is doing in and through you. But here, it's not so much intellectual as it is relational. And so think of this word know as it relates to some of the biblical examples that we have in which a man would know a woman. In that case, it would be talking about a marital relationship that would have a very intimate connotation associated with it. Here is a very similar use, but in a different context. And so it doesn't have any sort of physical component that is associated with the previous example, but rather it does still maintain the unique intimacy of knowledge that comes by experience. Knowing Jesus, being in Christ, goes beyond than, more, than just information that's in our heads. So even though Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, the world did not know him. Arthur Pink wrote many, many years ago numerous uh, commentaries on various books of the Bible probably most noted uh, for his commentary on the book of Genesis. That was my first introduction to it. Uh, I was in college, and one of the things that we were studying in Old Testament was Genesis at the beginning. And so I scrounged around in my dad's library, and I found a commentary by Arthur Pink and, uh, and found it just 
amazing and something that, uh, that really spurred a lot of thought and conversation. Dr. Pink wrote in regard to this passage in John, and I didn't, I didn't write down the quote specifically, but he wrote that the revelation of the light that comes through uh, what John was proclaiming to the world and ultimately what the world would see in Christ himself was so profound that it's hard to imagine in the modern era that Jesus could be present and people didn't recognize it. And he said, and yet, what better example of the blindness associated with sin and depravity can we possibly hope to see? Don't let yourself be put in a position where you look back at the poor folks of the day of Jesus and imagine them to be depraved beyond anything that you yourself have experienced. But understand that the very sin that captivated them in the days that Jesus walked among them and ultimately would lead those same people to cry for his blood and to gather at the cross watching him die is the same sin that you and I are stricken with today. He has come into the world. The world didn't receive or notice him, didn't even acknowledge him because they did not know him. They did not have a relationship with the light. It says in the latter part of verse <coughs> of the section, in verse 11, <coughs> excuse me, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Even the Jews didn't know him and went so far as to openly reject him. It says here that they didn't receive him. Does it mean that it was a casual, you know, no thank you kind of thing? Hey, I think that's great and uh, it seems like you've got things really going on um, and and I, I wish you nothing but the best. But that's just not for me. Is that what we're talking about here? Uh, Is it the response that you give on the days that you're feeling friendly to the spam calls that you get, uh, promoting whatever product it has to be? Uh, I'm that way. You know, there are some days I feel friendly and I I can be polite. And then there are other days that I, I don't know, I don't feel as friendly. And I either don't answer it at all or I'm not as polite as I should be. and, and what is the deal with uh, the entire world basing all of its product development and customer service on the surveys that I offer? Uh, so that every single thing that I do is there's a request for a survey. Would you mind filling out a survey? Would you mind taking a few minutes to fill out? No. Yes, I would mind. I, I mind deeply. Uh, it bothers me that you've even asked, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and so, yes, I'm, I'm offended by it. I don't want to do it. Uh, I just, I just want to go. Uh, well, here's a receipt, and there's a place you can go online, and you can do that when you get home. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do that either. Uh, but, but thanks for asking. Got to go. Um, and so I, I'm not probably, but this is just me for, further developing. I mean, I'm thinking another four to five years before I'm sitting on the porch yelling at people to get off my lawn. Uh, the, uh, right now, I don't yell at them, but I think it. I look out the windows, who is that and what are they doing in my yard? <laughs> Which is great when you live next door to a school. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's plenty of opportunity for it. <laughs> 
what is it about this? We go through this and, and this is not some sort of casual, polite uh, acknowledgement of something, but no, uh, uh, I, I would prefer not to. This is an open and violent rejection of truth. This is a denial of uh, the light. This is a refusal to believe. This is something that people have allowed the, the sinfulness to so captivate their thoughts that it is now bled into the open decision of rejection of Christ. Now here's that, that juxtaposition that takes place between what is light and what is dark, between what is true and what is false, between what is good and what is evil. There's always a tension there. There's always a, a conflict that we feel kind of in the middle of at times. And that's what's going on here. What we're hearing is that the light came into the world, but the world didn't know him. And they didn't, they didn't receive him, but actively and openly rejected him. When we present the gospel, the gospel is so revealing that it leaves no room for casual dismissal. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the gospel that you're presenting is something that allows people to walk away feeling as though, no, I didn't take, a, uh, I didn't take advantage of the offer, but my life is in no wise diminished. The reality is that when the gospel is presented in its fullness, it reminds us not only of our desperate need, but it also reminds us that there simply is no other means of hope, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And denial of the truth of salvation through Christ and faith in Him alone is also to receive the condemnation of death. An eternal judgment. There isn't any in between. There is no fence upon which we can straddle. The Jews did not receive him, but openly rejected him. The light was reflected through John. The light was rejected by the world into which Jesus came, but the light was received by some. In verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light received. He says in verse 12, even though they rejected him, to all who did receive him and who believed in his name. Notice those two things. The same aggressive tone that is associated with the word that they did not receive is now associated with they did receive. So when, they, when we do not receive Jesus, we are in essence rejecting and denying Jesus. When we do receive Jesus, we are embracing and believing in Jesus. Here's that word again. And now we see that it is much more than mental assent. Now it is a full and complete contribution of ourselves to his work and to his truth. It is opening ourselves up to Christ in such a way as to not only know who he is, but to be known by him, to enter into this intimate relationship. In spite of the world's rejection, some did receive him and some believed in his name. And that will always be true. It will always be true. Our responsibility is not to change people, 
Because that isn't possible. You and I cannot change people. Our responsibility is to be faithful to the truth of Christ and to share Him believing that He will change people. Bringing people to Christ is the work of God, not the work of a pastor or the work of a believer. We are called to make disciples, understanding that we do that through the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation. And we do that through the teaching of who Christ is and how He is working in us and the world around us. And we do that by helping people to reach some level of spiritual maturity whereby they themselves also become disciple-makers in the process, understanding that God is the one who changes people. To all who received Him, To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believers are now adopted into God's family by his work of grace. We enter into a family relationship that speaks of God as our father, that reminds us that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we have been adopted into this family, taken from a place of desperation where we were isolated and alone and without hope, and brought into a family where we are given not only a connection that is beyond anything that we could have known before and is in fact eternal, but we are also provided with all that is necessary and needed in order to grow in a healthy fashion, in the confines of God's family. But he warns, this salvation that we have experienced and received, this adoption into the family of God that is of such a blessed nature, he reminds us that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God. How do we understand those three exceptions? Not of of blood. There are many who believe that because they are born into a Christian home, they are therefore Christians. The very fact that you are born into a home that claims to be Christian to no fault of your own or as a result of no effort on your own, you're automatically grandfathered into redemption. And, and while if you were to say it that way to somebody, they probably wouldn't think that's how, uh, how it happens and they I doubtfully would, re- would agree with you in that. And yet the end result is nonetheless the same. I mean, I've spoken to people and we like to use in, in our denomination, we like to use, you know, different kinds of illustrations. We don't talk about uh, believing that we are Christians because of blood is something that, you know, you were baptized as an infant perhaps, or you were brought into the church as a result of some dedication on the part of your parents, and then that's sufficient. But we like to talk about how, you know, people will say, well, are you a Christian? Well, you know, my uncle is a pastor. I, I didn't ask about your uncle. What does that mean? Well, you know what it means. People mean by that, no, I'm not really a Christian, but I have family members who are. And the Christian adjacent should be enough to get me into heaven. 
I'm familiar with the words and the lingo. Not by blood. You're not born into this. The reality is you're born into sinfulness. We are all sinners by nature, but also by birth. We have a sin nature that is present in us from the moment of conception. It is handed down from one generation to the next. And it is the very reason why Christ came and died for us, that we would be redeemed from that legacy of sin. Not by, not by blood. He says that we are born again. Not by blood, nor are we born again by the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh is a confusing thing. Again, it goes back to a similar type of illustration that we most often associate with a marital relationship that has a physical component to it. Uh, in that regard, what he's talking about is that a union that occurs between a husband and a wife will result ultimately, in most cases, in a child being born. And so he's talking about conception. And he's talking about children, about, uh, about a family. But now, if you take it out of that context re in retaining the same intimacy... He's saying that this isn't something that, that two people can decide that they're going to be a part of and then come together in order to procreate, but rather this is something that happens wholly and utterly apart from that. We are born again not by the will of, not by the, the act of blood being passed on from one generation to another, nor are we born again because a couple of people get together or one person decides that that's how it's supposed to be. I told you earlier, you can't change people. But it is also not by the will of man. You see, spiritual birth, being born again, isn't something that is confined to some sort of being born to the right group of people or being brought to it as a result of a family relationship, nor is it something that can be accomplished by the manipulation of another human being. Being born again and coming to the light, receiving Jesus is 100% dependent on His Spirit's work and His act of grace. Now, what does that do for us? It takes all of what John the Apostle was declaring to us about the true light and puts it into a context that we can understand the procedure. But more than the procedure, now we get to see beyond the mechanical part of it the formula that so many people are familiar with, and we get to see the heart and soul of genuine salvation. You see, this is a picture of where we are in the world today. There is an announcement. Jesus is the Messiah. He's here. Everything that we experience and all that we know in the world around us is made by Him. He has come to His own. His own rejected Him. He has come to the world. The world didn't receive him either. But he's here. You look around in this room and you see the number of people that are gathered in this place and you know that across this community there are other churches 
like ours with similar gatherings, and yet we still represent a vast, overwhelming minority of people that are not in church today. There are more people today in Sullivan, Missouri that don't believe in Jesus than there are that do. And some of those who don't believe are actually in church today. You see, the issue is not about your associations. It's not about your patterns and traditions. It's not about the will of your parents. It's not about the upbringing in your home. It's not about the decision by somebody else along the way. It is always and only dependent on God's grace and your willingness to receive Jesus in a way that changes us. The true light illuminates our world and our lives. But in that he reveals not only the way out and the way forward, but he also reveals the very thing that's destroying us in the first place. As we see and as we understand with fresh vision what Christ has done for us, may we see the true light that has come into the world to bring about hope and redemption. And as we do, may we remember to any who receive him, to all who believe in his name with that full commitment of life, he has given the right to be called children of God. That's who we are. And that's the message the world needs to hear. May we be faithful as we share the true light in a world of deep, 